You are listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. So I thought that it would be great to create a group where people can talk about entrepreneurship, kind of learn about it, network, grow together. And that was the idea of the group. It's all about networking, collaborating, which we've talked about. But you don't know what you don't know. You know, if you feel like you're a physician burned out or that, you know, you don't want to do this for the next 10 years and people are like, well, what do I do next? Nothing's going to happen overnight, but you start networking, collaborating with people, you'll see uh, things will change and you'll, then you'll see what other people are doing. And it's all about ideas and being open and learning. So I think that the group is important, whether it's my group or another group, it doesn't really matter, but to surround yourself with people that are like-minded and are going in a direction you want to go. Because it's hard. Um, Sometimes, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, if you have a steady job, it's paying well, your family, your friends are like, what are you doing? You know, why would you give that up? I'm Melissa Daniel Howard, VP of Physician Placement at Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where we chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital walls, and everything in between. Dr. Sharon McLaughlin, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on Branch Out. Melissa, thank you for having me. And I always say thank you very much for getting the word out. It's so important to hear about physicians, what they're doing, and let other people know what physicians are capable of. And also let other physicians know that they don't necessarily have to be with patients all the time. There's other things that they can do as well. Mm, I love that. Well, good. Well, we are definitely going to address all of that and so much more. Um, before we get started, just at a broad glance, you are a not only a board certified plastic surgeon, but you're also a serial entrepreneur. You are an advocate for female physician entrepreneurs as well. You're a consultant. There are many other things in your CV, uh, and I want to get into all of that, especially the ones that interest you the most. But first, can you tell me what led you to where you are today? Well, as far as being a physician, I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was younger, so it was always an idea that I was going to be a physician. I was 13 when I had gotten sick, and I really admired my uh, pediatric oncologist. So that's this is why I went into medicine. I thought initially I would do pediatric oncology, but when I started doing the rotations, I really loved surgery. It was that fast paced, go, go, go all the time. And so I was really drawn to that. And I do remember at the time people saying, you know, you're a female, you're a woman, you're going to be married with children. I said, no, 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 I'll never be married. I'll never have children. This is going to be a good career for me. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you know, it was the first few years and then marriage came and then a child came and I found it very hard to balance everything. And then on top of that, I really thought that medicine was changing. The landscape of medicine was changing. So it really had me thinking about uh, what did I want for the next 10 years? And I took a lot, it was a lot of soul searching, a lot of, um, you know, deep dive, a lot of reading and networking and talking to people. But I've, it wasn't, listen, it wasn't a straightforward path. It's been very messy along the way, but I've learned a lot. I lived a lot and it's okay. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Just a reminder that it's okay because I I don't I don't know a single human whose life has been super linear and easy. Let's just be honest, you know. <laughs> and the ones who appear that way, I'm pretty sure they're lying. So uh so okay. So let's let let's kind of start there. Um so you let, let's start with your history as a physician then. You know, obviously 
you know, being sick at such a young age seems like it was um, really a defining moment for you to choose medicine. Had there been any interest prior to that? Or was it really just the experience of being a patient that you said, I want to do this for other people? Yeah, there was no experience ahead of time. There was no thought that I would be doing this. It was when I got sick that I was like, oh, this is something I definitely want to do. Yeah. So it was my illness that brought me into it. It was helping people. I think that regardless of what we're doing, people in general like to help others. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. That's good. So you are 13 years old. And um, how do you guys realize that something's going on with you? I was sleeping on my belly and I felt this lump in my breast. And I thought it was the blankets. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, just move the blankets and it was still there. Kept moving the blankets. And then I'm like, this isn't going away. And I felt my breast and there was a lump there. That's how it started. This is how it started. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. That had to be so scary. <laughs> I just can't imagine. I would guess I was a wary ward. I knew right away there was a serious problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was told, oh, don't worry about it. It's probably a fibroadenoma or it's, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, and then we had the biopsy and that wasn't the case. It ended up being lymphoma. Do you think that, that your concern was dismissed because you were so young or did it have to do with the fact that you were a young woman? What are your thoughts on that? Probably, you know, lymphoma is relatively common. It, you know, it goes along the lines of leukemia, lymphoma, yeah. but to find it in the breast is very unusual. So I don't think that they dismissed it on purpose. I think they truly were thinking she's 13 years old, breast cancers, breast cancer doesn't come in a 13 year old, you know, it right. just it doesn't happen. But they weren't thinking lymphoma or other types of cancer. So what did treatment look like for you at age 13? Chemotherapy, radiation, well, surgery was number one. They biopsied it, they removed it, and chemotherapy, radiation. Okay. All right. How, was, how, how did that interrupt your life as a, as a teenager? I'm just curious. Did, were you able to kind of navigate those really unusual waters, or how was that for you? It was really hard, to be honest with you. You know, I was just listening to a podcast, and he mentioned that he had Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was 15 on this podcast. And it, it's interesting, but he had said that he lost his hair and that all of his friends, schoolmates and all, they lost, they shaved their heads. And I thought that was so different than it was years ago. I think people were scared. I think it was unusual. It wasn't spoken about. Um, so I found it very hard. I think being a teenager in general is hard nowadays. You know, I mm-hmm. just watched my daughter go through it. All the, you know, concerns about self-esteem and self-confidence and the mean girls and so I just think that losing my hair was so difficult for me, being what I felt very odd or like an outcast. And then I also had known a girl who was a couple of years older than me, or at least a year older than me, who had lymphoma prior to me getting it. And she ended up passing away very early on when I was in treatment. So I think that was a real problem as well. And then I'm also going, because that's some catering, you know, you go and you meet some of the kids waiting in the waiting area. They had tons of donations and a nice playroom, you know, whatever you call a playroom at 13. But at that time, it was a lot of video games, you know, Atari. Uh-huh. And the classics. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was there. And then, you know, you go one day and you ask about so-and-so and they weren't there anymore. Like they had passed away, you know. So you just always wondered, like, am I going to be next? You know, those types of feelings. I think a lot of that had to do with me being anxious. You know, I, I developed anxiety probably during during that. And it's probably lasted my whole life, to be honest with you. I still feel at times I'm anxious. 
I mean, how could you not be to be that young and be thrust into such a, you know, a tumultuous season and especially as a teenager and you're already having this angst and this, you know, everything about your body is naturally changing anyway. And suddenly there's a cancer within your body. You know, I just, yeah. How did, how do you, how did you learn to manage that anxiety that came after your diagnosis? I'm not so sure I did, to be honest with you. <laughs> to this day, I think, you know, we take, a, we talk a lot about self-care. I, I think that if I don't get self-care, I feel it more. That's like for me, drinking water, sleeping eight hours a night, um, maybe doing yoga in the morning. I've gotten into that. Um, spending some time outside in nature. And this is for you, but it's for everybody out there that should these are basic things that we should be doing. Yeah. My best days are those days that I get up early, I do yoga, I walk outside for almost an hour, and I listen to a podcast, like something that's inspirational, because I feel like my day is off to a better start that day, and I find that I'm more creative that way. And I feel like I'm probably less anxious. I, to me, being creative is extremely important. The anxiety, just I think that you just deal with it over time. Yeah. But if sure. I don't get the sleep, if I feel like I'm not eating nutritious foods, if I don't get that exercise in, I feel more worn and probably anxiety is more likely to creep in during those days. Yeah. So it sounds like managing anxiety is really preventing it by caring for yourself first and foremost. I believe it. Like For me, it works. And I would recommend it for others as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in full support of those things. We we joke that I'm kind of a hippie over here. <laughs> a very clean hippie, but you know... Uh, Definitely self-care is at the basis of so much. Um, and and I'm curious how that played into, and I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead. So it's a good segue back into the the medical side, you know, your 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 physician training, because I, I know you have alluded to burnout um later in your career. And so, you know, before we get to the burnout piece, tell us, you know, you decide I'm going into surgery, I'm going into plastics, here I go. What how, how did that play out for you? It was good. It was, I worked a lot with um, cancer reconstruction, like after Mohs surgery, um, complicated Mohs or extensive Mohs, however you want to say it. I enjoyed it. I love the creativity that went into it. Um, but as the years went on, I felt like the dermatologists were doing more and more. They were, you know, better training programs for them. And I kind of feel like it was being nudged out. I was never really into the cosmetic aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Although that would have been okay. I, I did some injections here and there, you know, Botox, because that was very bread and butter. But I can't say it thrilled me. It did the Mohs reconstruction, the cancer reconstruction is really like what recreating a face, you know, after a defect was really what made me happy. Yeah. Were there ever any cases that like, and maybe this would be a question for when you were earlier in your career, but that you thought, wow, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. Like this is a, a really big challenge. Yeah. I, one time, you know, when it comes to Mohs, what happens is that the longer it goes, you just know that the defect's going to be worse. Mm. So it was one of those cases, you know, you got it like eight o'clock at night and you're thinking, oh, no, no. And they come with a bandage on, you know, and so you never know what's going to happen. I, you know, I took the bandage off and like half that nose was gone. I was like, oh my goodness, looking right into the sinuses. But Ooh. I did fine. They did fine. It was good. That's good. <laughs> uh, sur surgery, I'll be honest with you, I have a little squimish stomach. So that the thought of like seeing into someone's nasal cavities where you should not be able to see, it, I'm just a little like, Ooh, mm, Lord. <laughs> so it's not my calling like it is yours, obviously. Uh, so I'm curious, um, you said you, you really concentrated more on the 
on the reconstruction um, as opposed to the cosmetic side. How do you think that your experience having cancer at you know such a young age, how did that inform your patient care? I think with empathy. I like to think that we're all empathetic, but over the years I've watched some people that I think they can be very harsh at times. And I never really thought there was a place for that in medicine. So that would be the only thing that I have to say, perhaps more empathetic, but that could just be me as a person. I'm not so sure that, you know, there's a lot of great physicians out there that are empathetic that didn't have cancer when they were younger, you know. True. Yeah. But for you, it is part of your story and therefore it is part of your natural empathy, I would imagine. Um, Yeah. So I'm trying to think how to best word this. Let me try it this way. Is it a challenge um, because you're dealing with things like mastectomies and, and, you know, parts of the body that are very near and dear to the person who's coming in with them that, that needs the surgery? Is it how is it to navigate those conversations with your patients to be empathetic, to be firm where you need to be, to have, just hold that space? I imagine it's an emotional time for many of your patients. It is. But here's the thing, it all really, if you have cancer, what's the number one goal that you're trying to do? You're trying to survive, to not have right? cancer, yeah. Yeah. So you want to get rid of the cancer, You and if it means having something removed, such as a body part or breast, it's mm-hmm. okay. It could be reconstructed. You're, the main goal here is that you're going to survive this. Yeah, that's good. So if you put it in that perspective, it's okay. Right. It takes some of the fear out too. It's like, hey, we're empowering you to actually fight back against this this invader in your body. So, okay. Yeah. So you have spoken about in the past that if practicing medicine was just about caring for patients, you would have really enjoyed it. <laughs> but a career in medicine, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, is much more involved than just patient, just patient care. Um, I believe you've compared your practice uh, as kind of likened uh, to being a hamster wheel, <laughs> to being on a hamster wheel that you had to get off of. So what what all contributed to that that sense of feeling like I'm on a wheel and it's got to stop now? I think not saying no to things early on. I think trying to compete with the, truthfully, the stay-at-home moms, you know, that I was, uh, that I, Mackenzie had, um, you know, became friends with and, and looking at those moms and how they were as moms, you know, relaxed and, you know, their lives just seemed so uh, like what I, I couldn't have, you know, they were always there for their children. Their children always seemed to be like, you know, no hair out of place. And if you saw my daughter, it was like here, there, everywhere, you know, it was no like that, like pretty berets and all of that, you know? Um, so those, t- I think that's what started probably, it had to be after my daughter, because I don't think that I, I was just go, go, go up until then. It was my daughter and then seeing, and really, you know, I know it's not good to compare ourselves, but I, I really was looking at those other moms. And I remember having a friend, there's still friends to this day, she's a plastic surgeon. And, you know, we used to sit in the coffee lounge ahead of time and, and t- compare notes or talk. And I'd be like, you know, Marge, I just love hanging out with you because I feel so normal because she'd mess up just as bad as I would. And we would just be sitting there laughing. You know, her daughter would call up, Ma, you didn't do this or that. And she's like, I'm in the operating room. (laughs) I'm busy right now. (laughs) I'm staring at some nasal cavities, hon. (laughs) Call your father. Uh, So those types of things, you know, it all depends on who you surround yourself with. Yeah. Well, she sounds, you said her name was Marge. Marjorie Reed. Yes, Dr. Reed. 
my best friend and I call each other Marge and Rhonda, so I feel <laughs> I feel a kin a kinship to her already. <laughs> so, from what you described, did you would you call it mom guilt? Did you have mom guilt even as a successful physician? One hundred percent. Yes, yes. To this day, I am overall. I think my personality is one to. Uh, I mean, I'm critical. Like I, I want to see people excel. And when people have the ability to excel and they're not excelling, I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I, mm-hmm. I know that I, with my own daughter, she's off at college and I'm like, you know, you have this opportunity to do this or that. Why aren't you doing it? You know, go in and meet this one, you know, mm-hmm. so those types of things. So, yeah, I, um, and again, you know, some other moms would be like, just let her enjoy, no big deal, you know, but I'm not like that. I'm always yeah. like more than one step ahead, but this or that, you know, you're trying to get into graduate school. Meanwhile, this is her first semester at school, you know, she just <laughs> be able to sit and enjoy it and hopefully not flunk out. <laughs> All right. I'm sure she won't. <laughs> For you, where do you think that comes from? Like in your personality of wanting to be prepared? Maybe the anxiety to some degree, because if you wait to the last minute, it's not going to happen. I think that, you know, I look back on being able to study. There are some students that truly could wait till the very end and do great on tests, but I was not that person. If I waited that long, then I was too anxious and I would look at it, but it wouldn't go in, you know? And I think my daughter is actually similar to that. I'm like, I don't care that your friends are waiting till the end. You can't do that. You know, right. you need to do this ahead of time. And um, it doesn't matter if you're a few days ahead of the work. It's better because life comes in the way. You get a head cold, something comes up, somebody gets sick, you know. So I think that being prepared helps decrease anxiety, actually. It decreases stress. You know, I feel better prepared. You're preaching to the choir because I know all those things that you were just describing, and yet I'm still the procrastinator. It's just my personality. I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out later. It's exciting when you're, you know, pressed for time. <laughs> it's not. Spoiler alert, it's not. Hey, this is Melissa Daniel Howard. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Just a brief message about Sycamore before we resume the episode. At Sycamore, our goal is to help physicians from all walks of life to practice medicine on their own terms and to create a lasting lifestyle. We believe that when physicians operate with autonomy and independence, it will lead to a better healthcare system. If you want to take charge of your career and lifestyle, please visit sycamoredocs.com so we can support you as your partner. Again, that's sycamoredocs.com, sycamore like the trees, d-o-c-s.com. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's talk about your journey from physician to entrepreneur. Do you feel like you went straight from clinical practice into entrepreneur? Did you blend them? How did you how did you get into that? Yeah, I definitely blended. I was always interested in entrepreneurship and how somebody okay. could start a company and do like multi-million dollars and why some people can do it and others can't. That always interested me. I started off with uh, mostly skincare. In my own private practice, I started labeling, you know, doing a private label where you take someone else's and put your label on it. And that sold pretty good in my office. I then got into the manufacturing side. I did a lingerie line as well for women that had cancer, you know, mastectomies or and or reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And that did okay. I really want to hear more about that because that sounds, it sounds like a total, you know, it feels like something that, that women need. Right. And so I'm wondering, was it a niche market? Was there a need for it? How did you get into that? That's fascinating to me. Tell me more. I thought this idea, because it was a problem for me, 
and I couldn't really find good lingerie that looked good on me because uh, the scars and the way that the implants were. The um, and then just trying to like kind of feel sexy in something. Yeah. So I didn't. I knew nothing about sewing. I knew nothing about manufacturing. But we're lucky enough that we're close to New York City, the fashion district, and there are these small little manufacturers around. Like there was one in Brooklyn that would do a small line for me. So I designed it. I knew what I had in mind. I would study different garments and, you know, think, okay, well, the V-line that that would be changed, we could crunch this up a little bit, kind of make it more customizable for the person that they can tie different things different. So to show more if they were able to show more. Uh, So that's basically how that happened. And like I said, I did a small run in Brooklyn. And they were really kind, you know, they were, I think they enjoyed the idea, but I didn't really think there was a need for it, to be honest with you. I ended up just, it was kind of like a hobby and I just ended up giving those away, but they did well. People were like so interested in it. I actually was in Daily Mail UK, you know, they they thought it was a great idea and I probably should have listened. I was like, I don't know, you know, it's, I really didn't think much of it, but Years later, I did come across somebody, and I think she's she's still in business, selling similar garments, you know, so there was a need for it. I just didn't really pursue it at all. I was yeah. like, I think I did, I challenged myself to do it. I was able to create a line. I was like, okay, move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And accomplished. So just out of curiosity, what are the, what were the biggest design differences? As, is, is it more just the flexibility to to adjust the garment or are there other specific things where like this needed to change across the board? Well, a lot of the uh, garments have some wires in them and that makes it really hard when you have breast implants because, uh, you know, where regular breasts can conform, be lifted up, move. You can't always do that with the breast implants. As far as the, what we call the cleavage, some women who have, you know, unilateral breast mastectomy or bilateral, they don't want to show cleavage because they're so flat down there, you know, so that helps with like the changing the line itself, but also, um, and then being able to put in pockets as far as if you were wearing a prosthesis at the time. What a great idea. I love that you pursued that. That's so fun. Thank you. I had fun doing it. Yeah. Did you ever have like, did you like take your drawings out and you like survey them like, okay, what do you think? A or B? Like, did you have like beta testing you did with your drawings? I did. I did. Um, also on Facebook, just showing different designs and all. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty neat. And then there was a group of that I was involved in, in Facebook and showing them the designs as well. So yeah, it was that's when it comes to producing any product, I will tell you that it's extremely important to test. You may think that people are going to buy it, but you'd be that would, you know, if we're going to get into entrepreneurship, you need to test. It's always test, test, and, right. you know, continue testing. Uh huh. Yeah. Have you had a product that you really wanted to develop and the test just didn't justify doing it? This is what I think when that were to happen. I think then you have to modify it. You know, there's no product out there that's going to be a total dead for the most part. And if you come across that, then you keep modifying it because your idea can be there and it may look totally different at the end, but you don't go from that product to something totally different. You modify it along the way. And I believe that there's always a need somewhere, um, but it just may not be that version. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair. You you mentioned earlier that you had done some private label on um, skincare products out of your office, but did you also not produce some out of your home? It, it, is that is that correct? I did. Okay, tell me more about that. 
I started getting into a lot of the peptides and tightening underneath the eyes itself uh, to help with the eye bags. So I started off in the, the kitchen and yeah, that actually did pretty good as well. But again, like scaling it and I was just like, I don't want to do this. It, just to be honest with you, as a physician, it's easy to use our MD for different jobs. And I thought about that and did I want to do this, like scale that business to the, because it take, listen, people talk about entrepreneurship, like, oh, you know, you make up your own hours, it's all great. And, <laughs> and that may be true, but this is my take on it. It takes a lot of hours to do it. When you're working for somebody, you are working for one or two people, you know, a company, but you basically have one or two managers. When you're in business for yourself, all those customers are all people that you're trying to make happy, you know? So I don't think that entrepreneurship is all like, um, how do I say it? Like it's the shiny, right? The shiny diamond. It's always like, you know, grass is greener on the other side. As long as you're, that draws interest to you and you're, you want to do it. But when it came to skincare, it was like, you know, this is good, but there are a lot of skincare products out there. And do I want to scale this? And the answer was no. Yeah. Yeah. So were you still pricing clinically? Like what was that transition like from clinical hours to creating these side hustles and pursuing them? What was that balance? At that time, I was still, um, when I was doing the private label, I was in practice. When I was doing the lingerie, I was also manufacturing skincare on the, and I definitely took a sabbatical during that, but I knew that I'd have to get back in. So I ended up doing utilization management. That's okay. how I got into utilization management years ago. I would any for anybody recommending like thinking about that. I think it's a good way to go. I think the hours for me it was like a total slowdown. There's no weekends overall. There's no evenings, and it was kind of more like a eight to four or nine to five job that I just hadn't had before up until that point. And I actually kind of enjoyed that. I was like, now I understand how other people work. You know, like I, yeah. it, it was very different than being in business for yourself. And a lot of that anxiety and stress that I had years before, that all kind of diminished with the utilization management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Sharon, for anyone who doesn't know what utilization management is, enlighten our, our, our audience. Tell us more about that. It's working for an insurance company, although you don't necessarily have to be an insurance company. You could do utilization management, like consulting and whatnot, but working for an insurance company, doing claim reviews, um, seeing if it meets medical necessity, doing denials. Um, and then usually those jobs, depending on what you're doing, what company you're working for, there could be other things as well. Some initiative programs that perhaps you can get started as, you know, if you're interested in that, depending on the size of the company, what the company is doing. But there's innovation in utilization management or insurance companies, mm -hmm. just as there's innovation in, in all types of fields. So if you're an entrepreneur and you like doing different things, you know, depending on what your managers are like and what the company is doing, there's room for growth there as well. Mm -hmm. Overall, would you say that, well, first of all, are you able to work from home when you're doing that? Correct. I am. A, I'm remote. You know, this, I have had positions where they're asking me to come in even one day a week. I won't do it anymore. There's not, we're on Long Island, the traffic just to get into like that New York area. Yeah. We're talking like two hour commute one way. And I know people do it, but at this stage of my life, I'm not doing it. Um, no, I don't blame then you. on top of that, I have ulcerative colitis. So there's plenty of times know. that I can't even make two hours in a car. You right. know, I, yeah. um, 
I can if my husband's driving, we pull over and he's great, but you can't leave your car in the middle of, I don't know, <laughs> Queens Boulevard and find a bathroom to go into. It doesn't work. I mean, you could, but you piss off a lot of people <laughs> and your car may the not car be there when be you towed. get back. Because <laughs> you were just trying to get to the office. Uh, does, uh, does it pay well? I did two different companies so far. First company didn't pay well at all, but it truly was a stepping stone because everyone wants experience. And yeah, I didn't true. really think that, um, you know, it was low. They paid their radiologist more for a radiology review company. So the radiologist got paid well, but everybody else, not so much. They may have changed that in the interim, but when mm -hmm. I was working there, that's how it was. But I guess if you're comparing yourself to, I was a plastic surgeon, so I made you know, decent money. If you're comparing yeah. yourself to internal medicine, a pediatrician, it's okay. Second job, I uh, was able to get because I had the experience. So it was on a higher pay scale. And yeah, they, you know, if you're willing to do your MBA, go back and move up in utilization management, then yes, you could do very well. Yeah. So it could be a good option for physicians who are thinking about really scaling back clinically and looking for some solid replacement work then. Absolutely. Yes. Did you find these companies on your own when you decided to, to move in that direction? Or did you have someone who said, hey, let me introduce you to this, this company? Yeah. The first job was totally on my own. Um, so I took it. I, and again, I wasn't happy with the pay, but I took it because I know experience is extremely important. Second job, I had the experience, but I also knew a friend. And I'm sure it, that made all the difference in the world. You know, people, I just had this conversation this past week with somebody and like, well, nobody really mentions that, but that's how the world works. That's, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that I talk about in my Facebook group, female physician entrepreneurs, is that you network, you network and you collaborate. And whether you go to summits or you're doing Zoom meetings or you need to meet people because that's how this world works still. You know, it's nice to think that, well, you can go on Indeed and um, I don't know. I've never really been that successful. The first time, yes. But after that, it's basically who I've known. And, you know, I'm sure you I, you could tell me stories, Melissa, but this is how the world works. It's how you meet people. I definitely agree. I think that no matter how far, you know, advanced we become with, you know, technologically speaking, like a human to human interaction can never truly be replaced. There's so much value in it. And, um, you know, I, I'm also Southern, if you couldn't tell by my accent. So, you know, we live in a, in a culture where it's like, I got a guy. Oh, yeah, I got a guy. Hey, I got a guy. You know, like you're always connecting someone with your guy. They're like, hey, I need someone to do X. You're like, I got a guy, you know. So um, definitely a big fan of the networking, the community, um, the just the human to human interaction. It's irreplaceable, in my opinion. I agree. And people get to know you and you never know. It may be not a connection right then and there. Maybe a year later, two years later, you just never know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's always fun too. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but like reflect back on a season of time and just see how these random people all came together to lead you to a spot. Uh, I did that one time and like literally drew a little map. And I was like, okay, I met this person, which led me to this person, which led me. And it was so cool five years down the road to see how all these people led to this one uh, shared thing. It was very cool, very reflective. It's very true, but you have to be open to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned um, just now your Facebook group, and I would love to hear more about that. You started this group when? 
about four years ago. It may be coming up, but it's probably four and a half years at this point. Yeah, okay. I started it because I am very much interested in entrepreneurship. And when I took this utilization management position, I let that go. You know, it was a learning curve for me at the company. And not too many plastic surgeons go into utilization management. You know, it's usually mm-hmm. internal medicine, it's family practice. So it's a learning curve for me. Um, and I, I felt like I kind of mastered it, like I was doing okay. And I wanted to bring something creative back into my life again. I love my husband and my friends, but they weren't interested in entrepreneurship. And I strongly believe that you need to surround yourself with if this is an interest of yours. So I thought right. that it would be great to um, create a group where people can talk about entrepreneurship, kind of learn about it, network, grow together. And that was the idea of the group. It really did, it has taken off. People are interested in it. But there's a number of reasons why. It's all about networking, collaborating, which we've talked about. But you don't know what you don't know. You know, if you feel like you're a physician burned out or that, you know, uh, you don't want to do this for the next 10 years and people are like, well, what do I do next? Nothing's going to happen overnight. But you start networking, collaborating with people, you'll see uh, things will change and you'll then you'll see what other people are doing. And it's all about ideas and being open and learning. So I think that the group is important, whether it's my group or another group, it doesn't really matter, but to surround yourself with people that are like-minded and are going in a direction you want to go. Because it's hard. Um, sometimes, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, if you have a steady job, it's paying well, your family, your friends are like, what are you doing? You know, why would you give that up? Especially after all the years that physicians have trained. Yeah, there's a lot of questioning, you know, but if you're burnt out, you don't want to be answering people, you know, this is your life. That's what I always say. So it's important. And we see a lot of burnout in the group. And a lot of people feel that way. They're, they don't like, you know, I know myself, I, my spouse asked an awful lot, you know, why are you doing this? This is not, not so much that it's not good, but like, are you losing your rocker? Like you have everything. Why would you do this? But, um, and I, and it was kind of frustrating because I was like, I felt so burnt out and, and having my own concerns and questions, let alone trying to answer to somebody else, you know, it's not something I really wanted to do at the time. So how did, so you started this Facebook group about four or five years ago, you have well over 7,500 members, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. So how did you build it from just an idea to over 7,500 members today? You know, there's no easy way to do this. All I can say is that if you're thinking about building a Facebook group, for the first few months, it was all crickets. I posted almost every day. I, I Not almost, I did post every day. If I saw articles that I thought were interesting, I'd bring that into the group. Um, you need to learn kind of the Facebook logarithm. Years ago, it was okay to do links. Nowadays, not so much because they don't mm-hmm. want you going off their their platform to go read an article. But you could show a picture, write something, and then say, you know, link in comments or something like that. Or I always use that pointer down below. So really just giving, like, why does someone want to be in a group? There's so many Facebook groups. People want to be in a group if they learn, if they feel inspired, if it makes them laugh, if they feel comfortable, if they're like, yeah, these are my people. And the same holds true no matter what you're doing, you know, whether mm-hmm. a club, organization, where are you going to spend your time? Is this a place you want to spend your time or not? Most people want to spend their time if it feels like they're getting something out of it, right? right. That's like the key here. So it, it, Facebook groups are not dead. They may be harder to build nowadays, but they're not dead. And if you think about service, you know, what do people want? It's that, you know, what am I going to get out of it? You'll do fine. 
Mm-hmm. So it sounds like really consistency and content were the two things that really drove you uh, to to be successful and to grow this group. Well, see, yeah, it, it's true. I also feel like during the time, there's been like waves of when I'm not as interested in growing it anymore. And I feel it like I feel like the group is like, you don't see as many comments, you don't see as many posts going on. And then that wave will come back. I'm like, yeah, manage This is good. I want to grow it. I want people to, you know, get that message out there. And yeah, seasons. Yeah, definitely seasons. I believe in that wholeheartedly. Yeah, And I think everyone, you know, I've seen people in the group go, come back again. You know, they too, life gets in the way. You know, life is always going and changing. But I truly wanted it to be a place where when it wasn't monetized, that sometimes I feel like people that have higher incomes, um, you know, they, I hate to say taken advantage of, but everything is money, 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 you know, pay me for this. I wanted a place where you could just come learn about business and that this was not monetized. This did not cost anything. Just come share, learn and be with like-minded people. Yes. I, I noticed I was looking at your group and first of all, just to clarify for our listeners, this is uh, specifically for female physicians, right? Yeah, correct. And I noticed a um, that in your description, you mentioned if you know you're welcome to, to advertise your own business if um, you first would make a donation to remind me of the name. It's Pledge for Pearson. Yes, Pledge for Pearson. Yes, can you tell me about that? Absolutely, I'd love to. Luca is my great grand. Uh, let's see, what would you say, great nephew? He was oh. born. Um, kind of have like a little, a beautiful little boy, just so bubbly and stuff, but definitely seemed like a little failure to thrive. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, I couldn't figure it out. And the mom had mentioned, you know, he was having some difficulties eating. And I was like, well, Mackenzie had been through that with milk allergies, but he seemed like pale. And and then my sister called me one day, she's like, Sharon, his hemoglobin is too. And I was like, well, you're in a small community hospital. Number one, get him out of there, you know? So, and then one thing led to another. One thing led to another, and um, he ended up having Pearson's, which is a mitochondrial disease. And, you know, the prognosis is not great long term, but I hope that with, again, entrepreneurship, with, you know, innovation, that I know that there's doctors all around the world, researchers that are looking to prolong lives of children or people with mitochondrial disease. And I do believe that a cure is on the horizon. I believe it'll probably relate to gene editing and it will be the mtDNA gene editing that will do it. Um, but they're working out some things now. We can do it with regular genes. It's hard with the micro, um, microsome DNA, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. microsome, the mitochondrial DNA, because there's a wall, there's basically two cell walls that they have to get through to to edit the mitochondria DNA. But I do believe that every week, if you just search it, news, you'll see that there's more innovation being done. So that really inspires me too. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I love that you're, like you said, you're using what you're already doing, what you're passionate about, entrepreneurship, to benefit not only your great nephew, but those who also have the same diagnosis. So that's that's really cool. I like that you're doing that. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's a few things that need to grow and mitochondrial diseases are, yeah. you know, whether it's oral pills, medications, which are, they're also working on changing the DNA. So yeah, I'd like to see where we are a few years from now. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you have any experience in this, 
<laughs> Give Sharon a call. Join that Facebook group. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm curious with all of your entrepreneurship experience, I don't think I've asked you this yet. Did you have a mentor in your own life, whether, you know, just growing up or in a professional sense that encouraged you to explore this and kind of showed you the ropes? Who was your mentor? For the medicine part, I would have to say Norma Wallner. She was a Brazilian pediatrician, um, pediatric oncologist at Sloan Kettering, who, you know, we befriended and we would go to lunch years after I was, you know, and all the way through being an attending. She met Mackenzie several times. Um, so, you know, I really missed her when she passed away. That was my mentor as far as medicine goes. And also making the changes, like getting out of medicine, leaving medicine, the clinical medicine, you know, she was okay with it. I, my parents were deceased at the time. I think I would have had a hard time leaving medicine if they were still alive, to be honest with you, because I would have felt like I left them down. Yeah. And I also feel like with her, I was like, oh, wow, you know, you helped me all along that maybe I was letting you down, but she was okay with it. You know, she's as I understand medicine has really changed and it's hard. It's really hard. So let's, let's talk a little more about burnout because I'm curious in your experience, um, what does burnout feel like? That there's no way out that, you know, I think we can all endure for some period of time. I often go back to like my residency. It wasn't easy being a woman in, in medicine and in surgery, especially right at the time that I was doing it. But there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, I could just make it through, you know, chief residency year. Like, that's it. Like I just have to do the five years, get board certified. I'll be fine. This will yeah. all be behind me. When you're in burnout or experiencing burnout or heading towards burnout, you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think this is part of the reason why we see physician suicide higher than we'd like to see or, you know, why there's any suicides at all. People don't see a way out. So that's a problem. And I think that's basically what happens with burnout. You do the same thing over and over again. You get yourself into a rut. You get on that hamster wheel we, you know, open this conversation with. Mm-hmm. And you don't see how you can, there's no like becoming a chief resident and this ending. You know, this is like, how do I get this behind me? It's getting worse and worse. And so I think this is how burnout happens. I think that you let yourself go to some degree. Again, if you're taking care of yourself, it's probably less likely to happen. If you're saying no, when you should be saying no, but I think you just get into like, you just say yes all the time and it just goes on and on and you give and you give. And one day you wake up and you're like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. How did I get here? (laughs) Correct. Yes. My girlfriends and I talk often about how we as women tend to struggle, maybe more so to say no, to say, okay, my plate's full. I've, I've got enough, you know, um, time out, <laughs> you know, stop asking. And, and instead of doing those things, instead of saying the no's and holding those boundaries that allow us to, to remain healthy, it, we, at least in our group, you know, uh, tend to say, oh, I'll take care of that. Yeah, I can do that. You know, oh, that I, I got that. I'm, it's on my list. You know, like we don't know how to say no. Do you find that in medicine? Do you think it, that women are more susceptible to to physician burnout, or is it is it non discriminatory as as far as burnout, or do you see a correlation between women um, in medicine and the rates of burnout being higher? Studies show that it's higher in women and also imposter syndrome is higher in women. So we can talk a little about imposter syndrome as well, but it's that feeling of, you know, I'm here, but I don't belong here. I kind of, you know, just got here. It was a mistake that I was put here. Yeah. Do, Do female physicians talk about that with each other? Correct. Yes. Good. 
good. I imagine that's helpful to at least say, oh, I'm not alone, you know. Yeah, no, it's all about surrounding yourself with like-minded people, people that have gone through what you've gone through, you know, and and that's why I think these podcasts are great, because you're letting other people hear your message, and everyone has a story to tell. But certainly, whether it's been they've gone through burnout, like, you know, that feeling of there's no getting off the hamster wheel, or how is this going to end? You get inspired by other people you hear their stories. So I'm all a big fan of like what you're doing. It's extremely important. That's good. So when you decided within yourself, when you began to, to vocalize that internal struggle of I'm losing myself, I don't see an end to this, I need to get off this, you know, this ride. And you express that even communicating that well to your husband, there were some challenges in doing that, right? To, to um, pull back the curtain on what you were experiencing internally so that it made sense kind of externally. Let's say that there's a, a a female physician listening right now, and she's feeling like there's no end to this, and she's pulled in 17 directions, and I'm a failure if I quit, but I feel like I'm a bad mom, and I don't belong here, but I just want to get off. What would you tell that woman today? Start saying no tomorrow. Today, we'll start with today, you know. Just start saying no to things because if you're feeling overwhelmed, there's a reason for it. Right. You like the way I broke it up was very simple. Could I change my marriage? Yes. Could I change my daughter? Yes. Could I change my career? Yes. But which one was the most important to me? When which one was the least important to me? So, and I really just tried to simplify it that way. I knew that one of them had to go. So it was the career, and it wasn't a total loss of a career. Just I modified it some. I started doing different things. But one of the first things I remember doing is saying no to people, you know, like that was extremely important because it got to a point, you know, we always talk, you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah, It truly was an empty cup at the time. You know, I couldn't give anything more. So I stopped doing things that other people wanted me to do. Mm. So it sounds like by learning to say no, you began to make more space for the things that you actually wanted to say yes to and increase your capacity to recognize the difference and actually like invest your energy where you wanted it to be. Yeah, I am very much into self-development. Like we started off with saying, I whether you're doing yoga for 15 minutes a day, whether you're listening to a podcast, I love podcasts. And I think most people feel that way. You know, one of the things I will do, I don't always listen at one time. I like turn it up to (laughs) 1.5.1.75, you know, because we're always short of time. But Uh I will do that. And that's like a thing that, you know, and I'm not the only one doing it. People are able to do that. So that's why they have that option. If you spend at least 15 minutes a day working on some self-development, and some of us will be planning out like what podcasts you want to listen to, but there's a ton of them out there. Yours included, you know, they're good things. Just start off with that. Sometimes you're so absorbed. Sometimes you're so stressed that you can't even read a book. Like reading a book would be considered a chore. Just sit on the couch, look out a window or go for like I'm all about energy and wellness, go outside and walk. It's so important to walk, even if it's wintertime, get bundled up. But you know, have your earbuds or not, or just carry the phone. Sometimes I do that. And just work on you, spend at least 15 minutes a day, who doesn't have 15 minutes a day to work on you, and just start off there and see what happens. Mm. Do you think it's also a deservability issue believing that you are deserving of that? intentional time to work on yourself? 
Yes, because that guilt comes along with it. Well, I can take this 15 minutes and try to, you know, work more with my child or, you know, um, have like a conversation with my husband or call this one on the phone that I haven't spoken to that's been reaching out to me. You know, like, why haven't you called me? (laughs) Yeah, there's guilt. There's definitely guilt. But I also believe that you truly cannot pour from an empty cup. We will know that. So if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like you're burnt out, it's time just to start off doing a simple exercise like that. That's good advice. I'm going to I'm going to incorporate your advice in my own life, okay? <laughs> I love that. All right. So I know we're, I want to be respectful of time. We're starting to get a little short. So um, are you down to play a little um, round of rapid fire questioning with me? Let's see how I do. Yes. Okay. All right. You just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. There's no pressure. <laughs> All right. What is the craziest foreign object you've ever removed from a patient? And if that doesn't apply, you can um, offer instead the most like insane explanation of an injury. Well, I'm so sorry to say, but I worked in the emergency room and for some people, for some reason, people like to shove things up the butthole. I don't know why, but they do. <laughs> they really do. And Literally, I'm really- more than half of the answers are uh, because of the butthole. So <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't know. I can tell you my friend Frank, who has now passed away, he is a he talked about um, removing a snowball. Like he's a pathologist, so our surgery team, you know, sent it down, uh-huh. and um, it was you know. A snowball, like one of those Wait. things you shake up with like snowflakes and all. Oh, like a snow globe? Yeah, snow globe. Ouch. Oh. But it did say you... we're but it did say world's best mom. <laughs> oh my lord. Oh man. You gotta ooh. I don't even know how to respond to that one. <laughs> That's great. Um okay, tell me what is your go to meal or snack while you are in the middle of the hustle and grind? I like this kind bar. It's like 90 calories. It's pretty small. I There's a little sugar in it for sure, but not bad. It's like kind of got that sweet thing. So that's like, that's good. Something packaged that I think is relatively healthy for me. Other than that, it would definitely have to be the fruits and vegetables. But my go-to is that little kind bar. Okay, good. Good answer. I like those as well. Um, if you could instantly become an expert in anything, like it doesn't matter if you have no experience in it prior at all, anything you want to be an expert in, immediately, what would it be? Preventative care. I believe that we so much of this needs to work on preventative care and more so than just becoming the expert because I know a lot about it is actually how you implement it where people are going to follow through. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it that we aren't eating our fruits and vegetables like we should be? Why are we still eating? Like, why are we a nation of eating fast food and so many refined grains and just changing the nutrition overall? Because I believe that that would it's not so much the idea of it because that's out there. It's more getting, I'll be an expert as far as, yes, we can do this and it'll implement and people are going to follow it. So I am tracking with you 1000% on that. I'm huge into functional medicine and, and functional nutrition, especially. I think it's fascinating. I think that part of the reason people don't implement what they know to implement, I'm using no in quotes, is I don't think they really like understand the immense impact that food has on your overall health. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'd like to think that that's not the case because it's so easy, right? It's everywhere, but they ch- people choose not to listen. We know we're not supposed to smoke, and yet, you know, there's the physicians that are smoking, there's cardiologists that are smoking, so go figure. Yeah. I don't know. It may be an ease. It may be like people talk about the um, addiction to food, you know, like they just can't give up that fat content, salt content. Mm-hmm, the salt, yeah. 
I don't know the answer. I have. I think that we do know. We hear about fruits and vegetables all the time, but I, I truly think that people don't think that it's going to help them, and that it's easier just to grab a Big Mac. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Uh, I can't even tell you the last time I had McDonald's, but uh, not to be elitist. Sorry, Taito, take that out. <laughs> All right. Um, Sharon, what is your favorite hobby? Walking, hiking, being outside. You know, it's easy, but it's really, um, I like yoga. I know it's secondary, but I love to be outside and I can do that hiking and seeing like these beautiful views that you just don't get in your house. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if you were like hiking up a small mountain to a to an outdoor yoga facility for some poses, that would be like the ideal, right? It would be. I love water, like watching a lake or looking at a lake, and you know, especially now with the fall, all the colors, it's gorgeous. I know. I'm same, same. All right. If you could travel anywhere, um, so your schedule was cleared out, and someone gave you a ticket, where would you go? What's your What's your next destination you'd like to to visit? It would have to be Amafi, but we've done it already. We've done a lot of traveling, thank goodness, before COVID. But I really believe that uh, I just love all the plants that are there, the colorful, again, the water that's there, and the cliffs. It would be Amafi. Yeah. Nice choice. Nice choice. Okay. Your house containing everything that you own catches fire. After saving all of of your loved ones, all of your pets, so everything living is safe, um, You have time to make it back in safely for one more dash to save any single item. What would that remaining one item be and why? It would have to be my wedding ring, right? Because my husband. Yeah, everything else we can. But even that, it's okay as long as we have health and well, you know, that's all that matters. It would have to be my wedding ring because that, you know, we've had our ups and downs in marriage, but he's my best friend. Yeah, that's lovely. Hey, all marriages have ups and downs. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) Um, Okay, do you have any secret talents? I don't believe so. I wish I could sing. (laughs) Hey, everybody can sing. Some just better than others, you know? (laughs) I don't believe so. I like to think that my biggest talent, though, I think is which I mentioned is empathy. Because I just believe now with everyone being stressed, we need more empathy in the world. You know, that's a, a trait that we should all have. Just be patient with each other. Absolutely. That that sounds like a superpower more than just a talent, you know. <laughs> um, any r- books that you've recently read and really enjoyed? Any recommendations for our listeners who like to read? I just finished uh, listening. You know, I'll be honest with you. I spent a lot of time on the computer, so my eyes are killing me lately. I like, I just finished a book, Think Big. It's by David Schwartz, PhD. Yeah, it was really good. And I, you know, we do a book club. Actually, we have a book club tonight in FPE, but we do a book club once a month. And that I recommended for December because I think that if we do like think big and then on January, we're going to do kind of like a plan for the year type of thing, you know, but I want to get that think big in first. That was a good book. Excellent. What's the best advice you've ever received or given? To say no. I saw a post recently, November. November is a season for saying no. <laughs> you know, it starts with November. Oh, I, I, I believe that you need to say no. That is the best advice. If you're yeah. feeling over, like in the season of being overwhelmed, then say no. All right. Start off there. And as far as advice, just surround yourself with people that are like-minded. I don't know that I've ever, those are the common themes over and over again. And that would be it. Like you truly, we can get into 
obstacles and roadblocks. You are like your biggest roadblock. It's you're the obstacle. You're creating the obstacle. There's nothing that you can't do if you set your mind to it. Good reminder. All right. And last one for now. Do you have a motto or a mantra? It may just be say no, but do you have a motto that you really uh, try your best to live by? Never stop learning. That's good. All right. Well, I have so enjoyed Sharon, having you here with me today. It's really been a a pleasure speaking with you and hearing your um, experience both clinically, but also transitioning into entrepreneurship. And I think you've you've done a really good job at reminding physicians and especially female physicians, the power of, of saying no of caring for themselves uh, and how important that is on all circuits, you know, not just professionally, but within themselves, their families, their friendships, um, everything that makes them a complete human. So I really appreciate your perspective and sharing your time and your, your energy with us today. Um, Any parting thoughts, anything you want to leave with our listeners? Just grow, just constantly grow. So, you know, pick it, have some goals. It's important to have goals and work on them. Work on yourself before you're doing anything. If you want to become a leader, then work on you being a leader first before doing anything else. It all starts with you first within. That's, that's good. That's good. Well, Dr. Sharon McLaughlin, thank you so much again for your time. It has been a pleasure and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Melissa, thank you so much again for having me. And I am looking forward to sharing your podcast with others. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You know, I'm pretty sure it was Abraham Lincoln who said that true friends share good podcasts. So go on, share Branch Out with all your good friends.